Hi, everyone, and welcome to church. It's so good that you could join us today for our kind of final Advent week. I know that Christmas is next week and Saturday, but next Sunday we'll be moving on. So this is kind of the final uh, episode of our Advent series, if you want to call it that. And so today I'm excited because we're going to be talking about one of the most famous prophecies that most people can recognize without even really hearing the verses that it entails. And we're going to be talking in Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to be talking about the Emmanuel prophecy. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to be reading reading through verses 1 all the way through verse 17. So it says in Isaiah chapter 7, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria... Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within sixty-five years of Ephraim, <clears throat> within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, days that have not yet not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you came to this earth. And as we've been talking about your advent, as we've been talking about your first coming to this earth, Lord, I pray that we would remember that there's a purpose behind everything that there's a reason why you came and that you are good and you are holy and you love us so much. And so, Lord, today as we, as we explore all of the reasons why you came to be with us, Lord, I pray that your word would speak to us and that our hearts would be changed and that we would be a people that desire to pursue the things of God and to pursue you in more spirit and more truth. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in your name. Amen.
So as we just read, we are dealing with the Emmanuel prophecy, and we talked about that again. And now this prophecy is big because everybody is familiar with it, but it's also big because of the hope that Judah needed at the time of this prophecy. So we're actually going to take a step back before we get into the Emmanuel prophecy specific, and we're going to look at the history of what was going on when this prophecy was actually made to King Ahaz. So in the time of chapter 7, if you are familiar with the book of Isaiah, from 7 to 12, it, uh, God and Isaiah really deal with the restoration of Israel, the future restoration of Israel. And so in chapter 7, that if you, if you remember correctly, the nation of Israel here has been split into technically two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom, the, the ten tribes that are Israel, and then you also have the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. Israel at this time was falling to the Assyrians, so they made a deal with Syria to try and kind of build, to try and limit the uh, damage that was being done. And Syria wanted, Is or sorry, Judah to join into that pact as well. They wanted to uh, link together so that the whole nation was one and that they were all fighting against the same people. Uh, but Judah had refused because of King Ahaz. He had this kind of pseudo-godliness, and we'll talk about that later in a, in a minute, but he had this pseudo-godliness where he wanted to try and say, no, we're going we're gonna to follow after the things of God. Now, we're going to do that in our own way because they still worshipped idols, and again, we're going to talk about that in greater detail, but they, they wanted to try and follow God, and so Judah refused this, this pact between Israel and Syria, um, and, and again, we'll see why King Ahaz was, uh, he wasn't wrong, but he wasn't ultimately a godly guy. Um, so this is kind of the temperature of the water for Judah when God, uh, when he promises this deliverance from uh, for Judah uh, and for the nations coming against her. She would fall is basically what God is saying, but God would ultimately deliver her. And so we're going to jump in here. We kind of have that as our background. We're going to jump in here to verse 8, where it says, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. This is important because the year that Isaiah is writing this is <clears throat> excuse me, is the year 734 BC. 65 years later, if you guys are math whizzes, uh, would be 669 BC. Uh, but if you remember, again, in, in our history books, in the year 722 BC, Assyria came down on Israel and essentially deported all of the Israeli, Israelites, uh, most of the Israelites, back to Assyria. They, that's how conquests kind of worked in these times. They would come in, they would take over the people, and then they would deport the people away from their homeland, essentially robbing them of their national identity so that they would no longer be a people anymore, that they would just, they would cease to exist as far as their culture and their art and all those kinds of things. Now, if you remember, moving on from this, what happens is 669 was the year that they actually sent people back into Israel to start with the remaining people that, they were, that, that were there. They were going to start intermarrying and intermingling with these people so that the completion of the, the robbery of their identity as a nation would happen, where now we've introduced false idols, we've introduced family into the mixture, they've forgotten what kind of people they are. It's very common for that to happen. So at 669, by the time this actually happens, 
Israel is just so broken down that they completely give in and they give up on fighting. They give up on trying to fight against it. And now out of these intermarriages come the people that we know as the Samaritans. And so you can see in the future, if you read your New Testament, you'll see why the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along so well is because these Samaritans were kind of half-breeds. They were kind of people that, that gave up on the nation of Israel. They were people who didn't fight for whatever reason. And so, so there's that rift that happens later on in the New Testament, and we see that with Jesus and some of the parables that he tells, as well as some of the stories that we read in the New Testament. Now, as far as King Ahaz goes, you can read all about him in 2 Kings chapter 16, but it's important to know this. He was not really a godly king. There's a couple of times, even in this section, where we think to ourselves, man, he is just doing the right thing here. He refuses the, the pact with, uh, the, with Syria and Israel. He says no to that, but he also, and he also, you know, acts super humble later on. But the, the problem is, is he tried to worship false idols as well. He was lighting incense in other temples, and he was, he was worshiping other gods as well. And so those two things don't jive. We cannot live with one foot in the world and one foot in the word. We have to choose which God we are going to serve, and we have to serve that God completely. A man cannot serve two masters. And so the idea that he is a godly king was half true, maybe. Um, but either way, God reached out to Ahaz in this, in this moment, probably because it was, pro- it was fairly discouraging watching Israel fall and knowing that your backs are against the wall as Judah, and now you have to make these choices. And so God reaches out to Ahaz, and, and knowing that Ahaz is about to get desperate, God showed his, him mercy and gave Ahaz something that he really doesn't give out very often. If we read about it, <clears throat> we read in verse 10, Moreover, the Lord, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. God is saying anything, high, deep, wide, deep, like whatever it is, you can have it. Just ask it of me because I want to show you that the promise that I give to you is going to be fulfilled. So this deliverance that I talk about, the, the, the whole 65 years, this people won't even be a people anymore, that kind of thing. I want to show you that that promise will actually happen. And so you ask whatever miracle you want, and I will give it to you. And Ahaz is interesting here because he tries to be very spiritual. Um, he, he basically denies God his, his, his moment. He says, I will not, in verse 12, he says, I will not ask that, sorry, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And oftentimes we will read that verse and think to ourselves, wow, how spiritual is that? He's not going to, he's not going to test him. But here's the thing is technically speak, not even technically speaking, Ahaz in this moment is being disobedient. God told him to ask. He told him, ask anything high or deep, doesn't matter. I will give you anything to prove my word will come true. And Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, that's disobedience. And so that's important to know is when, when God gives us this kind of opportunity, uh, let's not 
snub him. Now, again, this is not a this is a rare opportunity that God is giving Ahaz here, so I don't think it's a daily thing at all. But here he says, test me or, or ask of me. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. And so in, in verse 13, God says to him, here now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? God is frustrated with that, this idea that, that, that Ahaz is denying him, that is, he's being disobedient. But here's the cool thing is God decides, often he does this, he decides to give him proof that his promise will be kept. He decides to give him not only just proof, but a miracle to prove that what God says is, is going to happen is going to happen. And so how often does God do that in our lives where he, we don't deserve it. We haven't done anything to earn it, but he's going to give us his proof that his word will come to pass regardless of our faithfulness. You see, God doesn't work based on my faithfulness. God works based on his faithfulness and he is faithful irregardless of my faithfulness. And so my wife is going to hate that because she hates the word irregardless. <laughs> regardless of my faithfulness or lack of faithfulness. So we want to talk about, now we get to the Emmanuel prophecy. God says, look, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. In verse 14, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall, shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is translated as God with us. And most of us know this. Again, if we've grown up in any kind of church setting or Christian setting, we've heard the, the Christmas songs. We know Emmanuel means God with us, but we're going to talk a little bit about what that name really entails, what it means. So we see it here in Isaiah as well as in Matthew 1 verse 23. It's a direct quote of this verse in Matthew. And Luke 131 is interesting because it kind of quotes this verse. It's very similar, except for that name changes at the end to Jesus. Now, uh, there's a lot of different reasons of this. This, it may look like a contradiction. Well, God says Emmanuel in one place and Jesus in another. But it, it really isn't. If you look at the name Joshua in the Hebrew, it's Yehoshua. Uh, it means Yahweh saves. Uh, it's the Hebrew form of Jesus. Again, Joshua, Yahshua, Yeh Yehoshua. Um, this is where a lot of people get the idea of Yahweh, that kind of thing. But it, it's a form of the name Jesus. It's just the Greek word is Jesus. The Hebrew word is Yehoshua. Um, and so the, the, <clears throat> the name of Jesus is literally a fulfillment of the name Emmanuel. And it, if you look at it like this, God with us is proven through Yahweh saves us. And so we have this, this cool dual name situation where you have Emmanuel on one hand and you have Jesus on the other hand. God is with us and Yahweh saves us. And those two things have to happen. And we're going to talk about Jesus's humanity in just a second. But Yahushua was a very popular name for Jewish moms to give to their Jewish baby boys because of this very specific prophecy. You see, they wanted to be Jewish mothers, even today, want to be the Messiah bearer, if you will. They want to give birth to the, the man who is going to save the nation of Israel. And so... 
you have this situation where they will name their boys Joshua. There's a lot of Jewish boys, especially during these times. Jesus wasn't the only Jesus during his time. Um, but you had a lot of little boys named Joshua, Yehoshua. And so you had this idea that they would be the one. Maybe, maybe this boy will grow up and he will be the Messiah. And <clears throat> when, when they did this, they were, they were interpreting this passage a little bit differently than we would interpret it today. They, have, they would have wanted their son to be the promised child that God promises here. And you say, but didn't they see that the word virgin is in the prophecy? And this is, <laughs> this is where a Hebrew and Greek degree would be really handy. But they would have seen that word uh, for virgin in Hebrew is the word alma. And it's the Hebrew word uh, for virgin, but it also is, can be translated as a young woman or a maiden, or a, a girl of merit, meritable age um, who is chaste, so a virgin. Here's the thing about this word Alma. Seven times in the Old Testament, it is used specifically to mean a virgin, a, per, a, a, a woman who has not known a man. And so in this context, because of context, we have no reason to think it's any different except for, we're going to get to it in just a second. But in Matthew, specifically when he uses this word, translated again in Matthew uh, chapter 1, like we talked about, he uses the, the Greek word parthenos, which only exclusively means virgin in the sense of a woman that has not known a man. Now, so G Jewish mothers may have wanted to give birth to the Messiah. They may have wanted to be the ones to, to bear him, to, to be the chosen ones. But there was only one chosen one, and we know that to be Mary through the New Testament, through Luke and, we're, and, and Matthew as well. And we're going to talk about that now. We're going to turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And if you look down at verse 26. So we're going to turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, that's that Parthenoth, uh, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. And it goes on to talk about, it says, Then the angel said to her, uh, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus was the promised son here in Isaiah. Now you also have, remember we talked about in Ezekiel, we talked about the different forms of prophecy where you have the immediate prophecy, the future prophecy, and then the far away prophecy. Well, this is happening again here in Isaiah where you have the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy in a, a, a woman who brings forth a son who, who uh, before he is 25 years old, I think is what Isaiah says, uh, the, the nation will be brought down. And so that's the fulfillment back in Isaiah, the immediate fulfillment. Now you have the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. That's 
the secondary fulfillment, and then you're going to have the second coming, and that's where we see here in, in the later verses that we just read here in Matthew, he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. That's that future tense, and so we have all three prophecies coming in, just like we talked about in the book of Ezekiel, and if you're lost on that, you can go back and watch those, those sermons, um, but we have this idea that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah, and he does that in really two steps. He does that, yes, through his, his birth here on earth, and then he does that again to establish his kingdom later. And we're going to talk about the two different kind of ways that Jesus, or reasons that Jesus came. But we would be remiss if we talked about Emmanuel, God with us, and didn't talk about Luke chapter 2. And so we are actually going to read through the, the Christmas story really quickly, um, or at least the first 20 verses of Luke chapter 2, because we need to do that. It's Christmas time. So, so turn one page to your right, and we're going to read Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all, should, all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinus was the governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city to Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. <clears throat> you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. So it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem to see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all those who heard it marveled at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all, that, all these things and pondered them in her heart. <clears throat> then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. God, in this moment, Jesus Christ is born and fulfills Emmanuel. He is God with us. God has chosen to come down to stoop below heaven and come down to earth physically. Jesus Christ came as a, as a human, 100% man, 100% God. Now, this is significant for a lot of different reasons, and I can't get into all of them for time purposes, but one of the most, most significant reasons is because it's been over 400 years since God has spoken to his people at all. And so you have 
a 400 year gap of any kind of relationship whatsoever with God. And now you have God coming down to live among his people in, in Jesus Christ. And not only to live among us, but to be our perfect example. And that's step one of Jesus's purpose here is to be our example. We look at him and we see the way he lived his life. We see the way he reacts to people. We see the way that he interacts with people. And that is to be our example on how we should live our lives. His purpose on earth was to show us the way to the Father and the way to obey the Father's will. It was also to be the perfect atonement for mankind's sin. And that is something that we cannot stress enough in church. Yes, Jesus came to be our perfect example, but he also came to forgive us of our sins and to be that that substitutionary sacrifice that we can rely on to forgive us of all of our sins. He truly was the fulfillment of God with us because he is 100% man and 100% God. Jesus Christ is man. He is God. And so God is with us in the form of Jesus Christ. He saves us and lives up to all the names that, (laughs) that the Bible attributes to him. All of them, wonderful counselor, mighty God, all of these things are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He truly is the savior of this world. And so when we look at these verses, we can actually see how the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, comes in the form of a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths in Luke chapter 2, where we have a good example of the Christmas story. It was prophesied that Emmanuel would be born of a virgin over 700 700 years before it actually happened. Jesus was prophesied numerous times before that, uh, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when God says that, you know, uh, he shall bruise his heel on the serpent, but in doing so, he'll crush the serpent's head. That's That's a direct prophecy of Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of God's peace to lead people, his plan to lead people back into relationship with God the Father. You see, there's a gap that was created when mankind sinned, when Adam sinned in the garden. There is a gap, a chasm that was created between man and God. And for hundreds, thousands of years, there was this idea that sacrifice at the altar, at the temple, would cover our sins, and it did. It worked for a while, but it was constant, and you had to go back year after year, and you had to continually do this sacrifice year after year. And there was no stamp of fulfilled on any of our sins. There was no paid in full to telestia is what Jesus says on the cross. There's that not. A, there's no idea of that that completion of forgiveness of our sins. There's a constant going back to the sacrificial system. And so in Isaiah, when, when all the whole world around Judah is crumbling, God says, look, I'm going to save you. I'm going to bring you out. I am going to deliver you. And I'm going to do that in the form of a virgin giving birth to a son. And his name will be God with us. And so... we have this idea of this this baby being born. Well, okay, that's great. Yes, it's a miracle. But now it can't just be a baby. It has to be a perfect sacrifice. It has to be a perfect fulfillment of 
what life we were supposed to be living. And the only one who can do that is God. And so Jesus, again, is 100% man, 100% God, and lived a perfect life here on earth after that virgin birth, showed us the example that we should follow. He was our perfect example on how we should be living our lives, pointing us to the Father the entire time. And then at the end of his 33 years of ministry, or 33 years of ministry, 30 years of growth, he gets sacrificed on a cross. And the weight of our sin, all sin, past, present, and future, for every single person in this world that has ever lived or ever will live, live was put on him. And he died, and three days later, he rose again. And so we have this complete fulfillment, almost. And the reason why I say almost is because he's coming again. This is, this is the first See, Advent is the first coming of Jesus Christ. But see, he's coming again. If we read on in Scripture, we all know that he is planning on coming again. This time he came as a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Next time he's going to be coming as a conqueror, as a king, a righteous judge. He came to be our example. He came to be our Savior. And he, while he was living on this earth, he truly became God with us, Emmanuel. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you sent your son. We thank you that you had this plan to save us, to have relationship with us, to join, not to join us, but to provide a way that we can join you. Lord, we love you so much, and we just ask that you would Continually bless our hearts. Help us to remember that there's a big purpose behind your coming to this earth. And we sing songs about it and we dedicate a whole time of the year to it and we enjoy that, whether it's kids or adults. We enjoy this time of the year. But Lord, help us to remember that it meant something. There was a purpose behind it and that purpose was to experience God in the flesh, here on earth, through Jesus Christ, your son. And Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to do that. We thank you that you laid aside heaven. We thank you that you laid aside all of that glory to come and to humbly live out a life where you would be beaten and tortured and put to death ultimately. We thank you that you are our example, and we pray that we would follow your example even closer. We love you so much. And God, I pray that as Christmas draws near, that people would enjoy the time that we have with each other, but that they would be constantly looking to you as our example, that, you'd be, that we would be constantly looking to God the Father as the one that we need to please and the one that we need to f follow. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in your name. 